Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. My name is Patrick Francie, and I'm the CEO and managing partner of the Real Estate Investment Network. In addition to being a business owner, I'm also a real estate investor. I'm a coach, a husband, recently a grandfather. Now, along with that, I'm also committed to stretching beyond what I've achieved by continuing to elevate in living a fulfilled life by making a positive difference in my world. I'm going to invite you to join me as I delve into the details of the many wins of my guests in achieving their goals, along with, shall we say, the frustrations of the occasional deal gone wrong, because my guests are here to help you learn by talking about what's real for them in business and investing in real estate, from the life they're now able to live to the person they become along the way as they pursued their dreams in having the freedom they've gained by building a sustainable financial future for them and their family. Good day, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to this episode of the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. As always, and before I introduce my next guest, I think it's incredibly important that I start by first thanking you for listening in and for your support and the feedback you provide us on the show, as well as to remind and continue to encourage you to send any of your comments, your suggestions, or your questions directly to me at CEO at RainCanada.com. That is CEO at R-E-I-N-Canada.com. And if you're inclined, I'd really appreciate it if you were to share the show with your friends, your family, people you know, and yes, definitely even people you don't know. Rate the show and comment on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or whatever platform you happen to use to listen in as well. Please follow us on the Everyday Millionaire Facebook page. So thank you again for the feedback you provide the team and I. It is sincerely appreciated. My guest today, Susan Klovchuk, is a dear friend of mine. Definitely a seemingly ordinary individual who has achieved extraordinary results. And I'll open with just a very high level view of her background because it's deep and we're going to talk quite a lot about it on the show. But growing up, Susan ended up attending 10 different schools. Yes, that's right, 10. And as an adult, she's lived in nine different cities, including Vancouver, Lower Mainland, which was an area she returned to four different times. During the time that Susan worked, she built a very impressive resume that covered a very wide range of occupations and experiences from a cook and waitress early on to secretary and then sales, marketing, adult education, business development, sales management, and even far, far more than all of that. Today, she lives in Dutch Creek, just south of Fairmont Hot Springs in southeastern British Columbia, in a region that is commonly known as the Columbia Valley. She is currently an elected area director for the regional district of East Kootenai, And today, Susan and I are going to talk about her role in politics in a small center, her journey to get there, talk about leadership, about life, a little bit about philosophy, and actually a whole lot more than all of that. So without any delay, let's get this show started. Susan Klovchak, welcome to the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. It's so awesome to have you on the show. Thank you, Patrick. It's great to be here. Now... Listeners should know that uh, Susan and I go back, I think, about 25 years. Yeah, I would say. Yeah. Any further than that, I'm not willing to admit. (laughs) That's so true. And uh, (laughs) I met you through Stephanie. Uh, You're you're one of Stephanie's closest friends. You guys are like sisters. So that 
means that to me you're kind of like a sister. And uh, so I just want people to know that. So we're, we're going to have some fun on this conversation. Susan is uh, going to give us an update of who she is, what she does, because, uh, and I can't believe it's taken me this long to have you on the show. So welcome again, and uh, we're going to get talking. You ready? All right. Yeah. Awesome. Sounds good. So Susan, I, I, I like to lead into these interviews with giving the listeners a uh, a background, a insight into who you are, what you do. And I usually call it a 60 second elevator pitch, which is just an opening to a conversation and it could go as long as it needs to go. But tell me about what you do and uh, where you are today. And then we're going to start working backwards from that. Sure. So today I'm um, the elected official for the regional district of East Kootenay area F, which is about six thousand hectares with about 2,800 people, full-time residents in it, that balloons probably to like 20,000 during the the summer months. And um, I'm really, really proud to have been elected in the last municipal election last October. So that's that's where I'm at today. And I live in uh, Fairmont Hot Springs along the Dutch Creek with my husband, Doug, and Charlie. And Charlie, your dog, Charlie, a brilliant dog, by the way. I love Charlie. So give listeners a perspective because we are literally national and international in our listenership. So British Columbia, Canada, and where in the world, you know, where in the the province of British Columbia does Fairmont exist? Yeah. So we, we're, uh, we're along the border of uh, British Columbia and, and uh, Alberta separated by the Rocky mountains. So the area that I live in is is considered the Columbia Valley. It's in the southeast corner of British Columbia, and it's nestled right between the Purcell Mountain Range and the Rocky Mountain Range. So we're four mountain ranges away from Vancouver and about a three-hour drive from Calgary, Alberta. Now, your history is, is that you were born in British Columbia, I believe Victoria, correct? No, you weren't. No. Where were you born? No. Where, where? I was born in England. Oh, right, right, right. We go back all the way to England where you were born. That's yeah. true. Yes. Yeah. I was born in England as the fourth of, uh, of five kids, uh, the third girl, much to my older brother's chagrin. And um, yeah, my dad was an entrepreneur living in, um, we lived in, in Lancashire. And he had, a, when I was born, he had a wallpaper and paint store. Then he had a boat building business. And then he, uh, he and my mom decided to buy a small hotel on the east coast of England. And then he looked around at you know what was going on politically and thought, hmm, there's no future here for my five kids, so we better, we better move. We better immigrate. And so they chose to move to Canada, and we moved to Winnipeg in 67. Wow. So that's – okay, so that's going to be – we're going to get to that whole aspect of, you know, where he's starting out parents and entrepreneur and how you ended up in Canada. That's really cool. I forgot all about that part of your story. So I'm going to pretend I don't know you and quit trying to fill in the gaps. That'd be really smart, (laughs) I think. (laughs) So, So here you are today. You're an elected official. You've been part of, you've been in Fairmont how long now? 11 years, full time. 11 years. And you were on, or you worked with the chamber in that area almost well, pretty early on, did you not? Yeah, so I was with the chamber for for eight years, right up until just this past December. I was the executive director for the chamber and the president of the BC Chamber Executives 
and also on the board for the BC Chamber. Now, how did you get into wanting to engage in the community? Now, people should know about your areas. It is absolutely one of the most beautiful areas in the world, you know, from a a, a mountainous range and and landscape or what do you whatever you want to call that but it's i mean it's a beautiful beautiful area but a population of 2800 that blooms to 20,000 and we could get into because we you know I always come at it from a real estate investor and business perspective you know I'd like to start to understand for you when you looked at that area and you move into it and you get involved in the chamber and you start doing that what's the you know, what's the intention of the area? What is it that you bring or want to do with, with Fairmont and area? Yeah, so I, I mean, can put a little bit more perspective in. So where I re- represent is Area F of the Columbia Valley. The whole Columbia Valley is 9,500 people. And in during the busy season, which is typically summer, because then that's golf and water sports and all those tourism activities, we do bloom to about, about 40,000 there. But we were coming here as our, it was our vacation home out of Calgary. And and one day we were just tired of driving back to the city and said, we're done. Like, how do we get back? And and my youngest step, stepson was off to university. So it was like, well, let's move. Let's move to the cabin and figure it out. So we essentially, that's exactly what we did. I was, uh, I was working for a printing firm that I was considering purchasing and and uh, here in the valley and I was asked to be on the board of directors for the Columbia Valley Chamber and and there was a sad circumstances where we lost our executive director and because the sale of the print shop didn't work out the I was doing my own business consulting work so the board uh, the president of the board turned to me and said hey you're you're self-employed could you kind of pick up the reins of the chamber while we figure how out what we're going to do here and Essentially, that was almost eight and a half years ago. So that's exactly what I did. And, and, and I got into it. And my thing, wherever I've lived across the country, and I've lived in lots of different cities, has been that um, I support others to succeed in ways that are meaningful for them. That's, that's my mission statement. That's what I do. And the chamber was a perfect fit for that. So. You know, like so many women that Stephanie surrounds herself with or you surround yourself with, I mean, there's definitely a, you know, a theme to all those women. They're very powerful. They're in terms of who they are and what they want to achieve and the impact they want to have on the world. And take me back a little bit to, you know, so part of your career, because you moved to Winnipeg, your parents, your family moved you to Winnipeg. Tell me, start. let's start there for now and say, you know, let's work forward from there to where you're at. Because you, as you said, you've lived in a number of places. At some point when you left home, then you've lived in a number of cities and uh, regions. So tell me a little bit about that background. Yeah, so we moved to uh, Winnipeg. My dad, his first uh, job in Canada was with a company called Quality Construction. So he was working in in that world. And in uh, my mom was trying to figure out how to live in Canada, the whole new culture with no support systems. And uh, raised five kids while my dad kind of had his head down and his and his butt up trying to you know support us. And um, he bought a he ended up buying a hardware store. So entrepreneurial his whole life. And uh, and then we what he figured out early on in Canada is that if he bought a house, fixed it up, 
and sold it, he could get further ahead and financially and support his family. So we essentially moved every two years. And I thought that that was just what you did. You'd buy a house, you'd finish the basement, you'd landscape the yard, and you'd put all your kids to work doing that work. And then you'd pick up and move to another house and start over again. I just thought that's what families did because that's what <laughs> ours did. Yeah. And yeah, so essentially my dad was into flipping real estate, but he also ended up moving his kids. Every- I don't know how my mom did it. She was, um, yeah, just the, uh, she was courageous. She was hardworking and incredibly patient, you know? So yeah, so we ended up living in a few different places in Winnipeg and then we moved out to the country and my grandparents moved from England and uh, to live with us so we lived with our grandparents my dad built this house that around an old shack basically it was an old shack it didn't even have plum indoor plumbing and we lived there for a few years and then he was he in the meantime he had been uh, he'd got a job with the provincial government in manitoba creating their residential tenancy act and running uh being the rentalsman for manitoba and bc had hunted him so we moved out to british columbia and we lived in Horseshoe Bay for a while. And then again, we just kind of kept moving around and we ended up on Main Island in the Gulf Islands and built a house there. And, and I certainly, that's where I weren't learned any work ethic I had. I, I remember my mom asking me um, just before she passed away, she said, because I helped them build their house. I'd go every weekend during grade nine and 10. And she said, why did you do that? Why didn't you just stay home with, you know, with grandma and grandpa and and on the weekends and hang out with your friends. And, and I said, well, I thought you were too old to be on your own. And uh, <laughs> sadly, my mom was, was younger than I am today. So, um, but I learned a lot in that process. I learned systemic thinking. I learned a strategic thinking. I learned how to, to, how to roll up my sleeves and get the job done. I mean, I, at uh, probably what would I've been 15 years old and, you know, well under hundred pounds, I helped my dad lift a wall that he'd built, we'd built on the ground and we lifted it by block and tackle. I mean, those are, those are skills that you don't, you don't learn at school. You don't, it was, I just feel really privileged and honored to have had the kind of upbringing that I did with the parents that I had to learn work ethic and all that, all those lessons that I had. So yeah, I was, that was main Island. Then I moved out in my last couple of months of high school and, uh, cause I had to go to high school in Salt Spring. So I'd come home weekends and I found a, play, a, uh, a basement suite on Salt Spring that now would be like a fire trap. It was a two bedroom, one window, one door basement suite, uh, with an oil stove and it cost me 125 bucks a month. And I lived there for the last two months of high school and then for, for a little bit while after that and lived on Salt Spring for, for a few years because I went right from high school to working full-time for the local newspaper. When you reflect back and see your upbringing, you know, very entrepreneurial with your parents, your dad particularly, then provincial government, and you see your path is, is so similar in, in many ways. Yeah. And uh, because you, you really do have an entrepreneurial spirit, yet you've brought it to different companies that you've worked with. And do, do you, have you always seen yourself as an entrepreneur working within a corporation, for example, or have you always, do you see yourself as an entrepreneur working as a director that you are in, in Kootenai? Or what, give me a little bit of a, how, what's your thinking? Because the premise of the show has always been built on seemingly ordinary people achieving extraordinary results. And 
when you look at the success that you've had over the years, you know, the trials and tribulations, there's a certain way of thinking and a certain mindset that goes along with that. So as you're coming through and as you reflect back, can you see the peaks, the valleys? Can you see your way of thinking? And have you always had that entrepreneurial spirit somewhere under there? I would assume you have. And how do you view that? How do you take and put that into a context of what you do? Yeah, you know, Patrick, I have, I think I've always had that entrepreneurial spirit, but it, but it, where it comes from is, is that innate belief that was probably just drilled into us as kids was that you can do whatever you set your mind to. And that was, that was kind of the conversation at the, at the table. We were not, we were not allowed to use can't like that was not allowed vocabulary in our house. And even when I tried as a, as a bit of a smart ass teenager to say, well, fine, I cannot do it. (laughs) Um, you know, it just wasn't, it wasn't okay. My dad, uh, and my mom were like, no, you, you can do whatever you set your mind to. You're smart. We've given you good values. So it really is a, it's that, I think that's the, the trait that has allowed me to develop entrepreneurial skills. And that basic curiosity too, I think I'm curious, like I don't believe that a problem cannot be solved. And so I'm curious to find the solution and I'll work until I find it or until it's absolutely crystal clear that it's not, there isn't a solution, but I haven't, rarely have I got to the point where I'm going, this is, this is not going to happen and I have to move on. So I guess that's entrepreneurial or if it, or is it a positive attitude to whatever I approach in life? because of that upbringing. And yeah, I have entrepreneurial skills, but that's because I, I don't believe in can't. And I believe that whatever you set your mind to, you can accomplish. And where there's a will, there's a way. All kind of, it sound, they may sound a little bit hokey, but it, it really is the core of my being. One of your core foundational, you know, I, I call it a belief system, but it's more just about who you are, is around empowering others. And was that something that evolved and developed? Was that also came come out of how you were raised? Where does that live? Because I know you're very, very passionate and have been over the years of passionate about, you know, supporting women in succeeding and, and helping, and not just women, but I mean, that's been certainly one of your, I guess, you know, focuses over the years at times anyways, where you really want to get behind groups of women and individuals to say, hey, listen, we got this. We can move forward. Yeah. Is is that still part of your makeup? Do you still have those? Tell me a little bit about where that came from and, and where you live with that now. Yeah. I, you know, I, I guess at some point it's always been part of who I am, but I can actually pinpoint the year that it occurred to me that that was one of my highest values and that that was the biggest gift I had to give the world. It would have been around the time actually I met, I met Stephanie and, you know, we were, we would be having a bunch of different conversations about, you know, we're, ha- we're having pretty deep conversations in our late twenties. And I was doing some workshop work, some personal growth work. It occurred to me that really where, when I'm working and when it doesn't feel like work is when I'm helping other people succeed. And family, successful families or healthy families are really important to me. Whenever I would do any um, volunteer work, it always seemed to be around kids and families. And I didn't, I never had kids of my own. 
But for some reason, I was really, you know, that healthy family unit was really important to me. And whatever I could do in my volunteer work around kids or families, that seemed to be where I was drawn, whether it was with a women's emergency shelter. or and, and so I started to put the pieces of the puzzle together going, oh, it's my mission. And it's like, I guess it always has been, but I could never articulate it. And yeah, I would have been about 28 when I said, this is what I do. And that's interestingly enough, when I was able to articulate it, that's when things really started to move forward for me in my life. So I'd always been attracted to those opportunities, but it, I never, I didn't have that consciousness about it. And when I did, then I was able to say, I do what I do in order to support others to succeed in ways that are meaningful for them. So without judgment, it's not my view of what their success should look like. It's what their view of what their success would look and feel like. And that, that's when it doesn't feel like work. There is a um, saying, I guess, which is when it's light, it's right. Yeah. And it doesn't mean you're not working hard. It doesn't mean you're not working hard, but when it's light, it's right. And when you step into a way of thinking that is of empowering others and making it about somebody else that you're giving, not getting, that you come to it from that place. When you have an intention of empowering others, that's your intention. It's not a goal. It's an intention. That's how you wake up in the morning. It's how you think. It's how you drive uh, forward. Yeah, I mean, gosh, in, in politics, I think I would lose my mind because of the frustration of bureaucracy and politics. And, and that's just me. And I don't want to sound so negative around politics because they're really important. But when you think about the bureaucracy of it, as for me as an entrepreneur, and and I move as fast as I can move, you know, given the constraints of a team and all the rest of it. But ultimately, in in that environment, does it? Do you find that it's challenging? Do you have to really take deep breaths and patience, or does it just the way it is? Have you are you able to just go? This is just it is. I'm going to support everybody in in winning and empowering and creating a great team. How do you view that part of it? Because the reason I asked the question is this, let me give it a little bit of a context, is that when we have a mindset and an intention of empowering others, it's not always going to look perhaps the way we think it should look. To your point, you can't judge people. So how do you approach it on a, on a day-to-day basis? Or how do you just, how have you developed, do you think, your view of the world that allows you to do that and have flow with it? Yeah, that you know, I'm four months into this political gig. So that's a, that is really evolving. One of the things that I pride myself in and I have through all my positions, all the, all the jobs or the the roles that I've had is in gathering the information so that I can make, make the best possible decision. And sometimes, you know, somebody's going to be upset by the decisions that we make. We can't please absolutely everybody. And I, you know, I'm not under the illusion that I'm going to make everybody happy in whatever role that I am, whether I'm an elected official as a politician or whether as a, as a manager or, um, you know, the executive director of the chamber, I'm not going to be able to please everybody, but it's about, it's about gathering that information and making informed decisions and taking a balanced approach. That is the biggest challenge. And I feel that I'm really fortunate that I have, that I work with the perspective that I do because I'm able to bring, you know, conversations to saying, okay, this is the information that we have. We have to make these decisions in politics based on the facts. And it's so tempting to involve, you know, your opinion about a person or the character, 
but you, we can't judge the, the people. We have, to, we have to evaluate the facts. I'm not sure if that's answering your question, but I'm really learning more and more how important and how different I'm learning right now. I'm in a huge learning curve being a politician and especially a municipal politician, because we're making decisions about land use and, and you know, people's livelihoods and, and their, their homes and how they recreate and, and how we spend their tax dollars. I mean, there's, there's some really big decisions and I, I'm not sure that everybody really understands that whole uh, municipal level of government, but um, I feel that I'm able to bring this breadth of experience from where I've empowered people to succeed on, on their terms. Now what, I, now what I have to do is keep that in mind and learn this new skill really of, of bringing people together, finding a way that, yeah, we all want the same end result. Where we have to work together is on the how, if that, if that makes sense. Sure. So we all want a wonderful community. We all want great places to play and and you know, great schools for our kids and great health care and all of those things. But it where we often disagree is how do we get to it? And that's my role as I see it as a politician, is helping kind of steer people through that so they feel they get what they need and they feel that they're heard and we and we get to the end result. Do you think as an entrepreneur and, and that spirit of entrepreneurs, we'll talk politics a little bit, you know, and the spirit of being an entrepreneur, your background in business and what you bring to the table. Do you find that you have a different view of the world than, let's say, other officials, you know, that are part of what you're doing municipally that don't have that background? So do you think that you take approach and, and have a, a different view of the world because of that entrepreneurial background? Because I know for many as in, in business, part of the challenge that we face as entrepreneurs is a, a misalignment often in values with the government. Now, how do you see it? Because you you actually now have a different view of the world. You have that entrepreneurial uh, background, business background. You're driven. You do things. You're used to making quick decisions. You're used to having success in business. You know what it takes. But now you're actually at the core of decisions that affect business. That would be you sitting on, you know, in your printing business, for example, or in your coaching business or whatever it might be. I think it would give you way more experience and a, a, a better view of the world. But that's in my best interest, by the way, because <laughs> as, as an entrepreneur. But I want to know how you, in that environment, really feel that what you bring to the table. Do you see that difference? You know, I, I think I'm too early in the game, frankly, to, to see the, uh, too early in the role to, to see the, um, to see that distinction. Most of the people that I sit with around the table at the regional district of East Kootenai are, have entrepreneurial backgrounds. So I, I haven't seen that big distinction. Hmm. Probably if you ask me the same question two or three years from now, I, I have a more definitive answer for you. But I'm still in that learning curve. I'm still trying to figure out and, you know, read, you know, thousand page board packages and that sort of thing and trying to figure out what it all means. So it's a little early for, for me to answer that question. What I can tell you um, is that I've had the opportunity to, in, in speaking with staff and we have phenomenal staff about how we're, how we're moving forward, how we're making decisions. And we're going through a budgeting process, for example, right now. and. Um, I believe that with this particular uh, regional government, we actually do take a very business-like approach 
to is how we're managing the regional district. So I haven't seen that gap, I guess, between values in in a in any significant way. But I, I expect that that will come. Why did you get into politics? Well, I'll, you know, <laughs> I've always been interested in politics, and I've always had an opinion. I, I but I'm also of the belief that if you have a strong enough opinion, you better put your money where your mouth is and step up. And our regional district rep had decided not to run again. And she was telling me that she wasn't running. She was phenomenal. She worked really, really hard and she worked at it full time. And I'll tell you, you're not paid full time to do your work. And my thought was, well, if she doesn't do it, who's going to do it? Who's going to apply that much effort and care and concern to the role if she's not there? And I woke up the next morning, having gone to bed thinking about it, and I thought, oh, it's me. I better put my hand up. So I, you know, Doug and I had a chat about that. And, and he said, yeah, he goes, I think you'd, you'd rock it. That was last May. And I started doing the work and I went to lots of meetings with, with uh, Wendy, who was our, our area director before me. And she, we had lots of conversations and I put my hand up and, and I had a couple of people run against me in the election and I was successful. I, I ended up with um, over 50% of the vote. Wow. Congratulations. So Good for you. It was, it was interesting because it, I, I just knew it in my bones that it was, that was what was next for me. You know, that's an interesting, what you just said there kind of resonates is, you know, we talk about when it's light, it's right. But when you're making that decision from that place of knowing just from your heart, you know, getting out of your intellect and just really feeling it in your body, that's one of your characteristics. You live in that place often, although you're an intellect, you certainly have a really big heart and you're very in tuned with what that intuition is. And do you see that serve you now when you, have you always been that way? Do you, I don't want to say always, but was that a conscious evolution back in the personal development days or how does, how did that start to evolve? So, you know, you end up where you are because you've been on this really kind of amazing journey to where we are today or where you are today. Where did that intuition, where did you start to really dial that in? As I talked to many very successful people and those individuals in business and who have really made a difference in the world, they all seem to tap into that. Was that a very conscious thing on your part? Yeah, I, I had to learn to trust my intuition I used to think that I was just lucky. Mm. I remember when I, um, in my early twenties, uh, early mid twenties, I was I was working at the Brick. At twenty five, I was a, a store manager at the Victoria Store, and I remember thinking, "How did I get here? I guess I'm just lucky." And I just kind of followed. I just was at that time in my life, I was blindly following this path that kept revealing itself. And then, um, and I was doing some personal growth work and I remember I was at this particular workshop and I had this really vivid, vivid dream. I was paddling this boat like crazy. And then I fell out of the boat and I was swimming like hard, like really, really trying hard to keep afloat. And this person that I knew came before me and he said, Susan, just stand up and walk through it. You can. And I stood up and the water was only knee deep. Mm. And it was, it was at that, at, at that time, I realized 
I can do this. Like, I just have to trust. I just have to trust. And that was a, it was so vivid and I'll never forget that. Like that'll be, that was like that defining moment for me in a dream. And it was just, just trust, trust that you can do this, trust that you can get through it, whatever it may be. And it's never as deep as you think it might be. So, so yeah, I just, uh, that was probably about the time where I started to, then the opportunities for me to trust that level of, of intuition, um, they started to show up. So then the tests started to show, but that, but that's, that's what life is all about. So now I've, I've really learned to trust my intuition. And on those occasions when I don't, because that's what happens, sure. I kind of, I get a bit of a slap, kind of the cosmic slap. Yes. And, um, and it's like, oh yeah, you know, I should listen to myself. So I have no regrets because I'm here exactly where I was supposed to be because of all those lessons and all those paths that I went down. And one of my kind of my own things is, is I recognize the opportunities in my life as they are presented to me. So I think we all get opportunities that are presented and we can choose to ignore them and not see them, or we can choose to recognize them and evaluate them and decide to go on. So I think that's really a key for me too, is I recognize opportunities when they're presented to me in whatever form they may show up. Intuition isn't, is a big conversation. Do you think that as, you know, we, we often talk about a women's and in, women's intuition, but do you, do you believe men have that intuition? Just out of curiosity, I don't want to get too deep or go yeah. down a rabbit hole, but I'm just curious about that for you. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that's human. I think it's human nature that we all have that intuition, that connection to, to our spirit or higher self, wherever you go with that in your own life. Absolutely. I think, I think, uh, I think it's a part of our environment, our upbringing, or, you know, the people that we surround ourselves, whether it's supported or not. And I think we talk about women's intuition because it's kind of more accepted or it certainly was. Um, I, I don't think it's as, as big a gap now, but for, for women, it was accepted that women had that level of intuition, whether it was always demonstrated through being a, a, a mother or the mother figure or whatever that was. I think it was just more acceptable. But I think absolutely men and women have a level of intuition uh, that they have the opportunity to tap into. So you're in the community you're in, you're in politics, you, it gives you an opportunity to literally wrap your arms around the community to support and, and really make a big difference. And you are on a big, you know, a very large learning curve, as you've said, but your husband, Doug, is also in politics. And, and so, you know, tell me a little bit about Doug quickly and, and how that's, how that's been able to make a difference for you and just in your learning and, and support. Yeah. So Doug in 2013 ran in the provincial election and, and wasn't, we weren't successful. It was a, it was a running at that level of government is a team sport. There's no question. And it was really hard, but I have to say he stuck with it and he ran again in 2017 and, and won and super proud of him because in 2013, it was like, the death of a dream. It was around this house for, for, uh, 
for a, a couple of months. It was, it was hard. It was sad. Like we had, you know, he'd had this dream and I had been supporting him on that and it wasn't, we, you know, we didn't get across the finish line, but I really am incredibly proud of him and that he didn't give up and he didn't. And what he didn't give up on, not just himself and his own dream, but he didn't give up on the people of this riding. And that's, I think that's why we're together as a couple. We share that value of supporting other people. Doug was a uh, high school teacher. He ran a not-for-profit organization in Calgary called the Calgary Educational Partnership Foundation. And it was all about supporting kids to succeed and, and being, um, you know, creating that space for them so that they could be ongoing and successful in their lives. So we share that value. And that's probably why we're together. And that's why we're both politicians to this day. Now, when you look at some of the challenges that you face as a politician, when you look at what's going on in your riding, what are some of the big issues? Now, as you, you know, as you know, we, I'm my background and a lot of where my focus is these days is in the world of real estate, supporting real estate investors. And when you look at your region and you look what's happening there in a, in a relatively small population base over a large area what are some of the challenges that perhaps in you know real estate creates for you or creates for that riding and or even in in the world of uh, business ownership what are some of the things that you're as a politician facing or having to deal with that is up for you these days yeah well we got through our first cannabis retail uh a public hearing last week so so that's off the list um but, and what is it? Well, let's we, just talk about that. Let's dig into that a little bit. So what does that mean? You know, this whole, you know, the cannabis controversy, the cannabis, it's a new thing. It's, it's happening, you know, as, as, as uh, rental housing providers, real estate investors are having to say, okay, you know, what does that mean to me? You know, if I all of a sudden got tenants that are smoking and, and growing cannabis and how do I deal with that? And what does that mean to me as a, an investor? So are, are those things, how's, how's cannabis showing up for you? Well, right now, it's still really early days in, in the process. We, uh, we don't have any provincial licenses in the Columbia Valley yet. We've got two applications in for that. We, in order to them, for them to get their application approved, they have to have permission from the local government um, to open the retail store. So th- those are the processes that we've gone through right now. So that's kind of where it's at. What's interesting to me is that we haven't, you know, we've put some bylaws in place. Well, the the, uh, the villages, the municipalities near us um, have done so around the, the smoking rules, and they're the, basically the same. You can't you can't smoke on the on the streets of of Invermere, um, so therefore you can't whether it's a cigarette, uh, uh, nicotine, or whether it's cannabis. You know, it's been really interesting. You, it's not like people would have expected October 18th to walk down the street and be smelling, smelling marijuana. You can't, it's, it's not happening. And, and that's, I think people are being really respectful of that. I think there will be, it'll be interesting as, as growing happens. We'll may, we might see some of that this summer as far as people growing their four plant, their four permissible plants, but the same rules can apply around smoking cigarettes in a rental property or in, in real estate or, or smoking marijuana. I think those same rules need to apply. It's outside. I know we've, we've had uh, a couple of rental properties ourselves and that's always been the case. It, this is a non-smoking house. That's just the way it is. You don't smoke inside. 
if you're in a small ski, small coat side, and, and the same will apply um, on the cannabis side as well. So tell me about what you're dealing with, if anything, on, in the world of housing and, and real yeah. estate in the area. Let's talk about that. Yeah. So because we're a popular tourism destination, um, you know, arguably our, our largest economic driver is tourism, uh, followed by mining and forestry. But we have a lot of second homeowners, lots of people here. For, for example, in my community right here, there's 55 properties. And I would say 30 to 35 percent are full-time full-time homeowners or live here full-time. The rest are are weekenders. They're they they it's their recreational property. And some of them are have put them into the VRBO, the short-term rental market. And some of them it's great. Some of them not so great. Uh, there's a community down the road that's got a place that sleeps 24 people. And it turns them in, they turn into a gong show on the weekends and during the, particularly during the summer, because they attract so many people and, uh, you know, who don't necessarily respect the, so respect the community in the way that, that a, uh, a, the owner would. So it's causing us some problems from that perspective. But at the same time, there's people that are buying the real estate that uh, it, having a short-term rental is the only way they can, can afford it. And it's a dream that they have. So they're realizing their dream and kind of putting in the short-term rental piece in so that they can enjoy their property when they want to, that they can make money and make the, make the mortgage payments and maybe make a little bit of extra money on the side and keep and have that available to them. Then on the flip side, we've got an issue with uh, lack of housing, lack of attainable housing for the workforce that we need to provide the services, the tourism services, whether it's during the ski season or, or during the summer. So we're faced with hotels and restaurants and uh, adventure recreation businesses not able to staff up enough because there's not enough places to, to house those folks and they're not affordable. So some of those short-term rentals have, were once long-term rentals and, uh, and, and they're just come out of the market because of the of some of the challenges. I think we've got to do some work from a local government perspective in advocating to the provincial government um, on making some changes to the Residential Tenancy Act. It's just difficult to, if you've got a tenant, to to manage that property. It's not a balanced, the, the, the legislation is not balanced. I'm not saying that it needs to be in the favor of the landlord or in the favor of the tenant. There needs to be a balance there. And right now there, there just isn't that. And it's, it's difficult, particularly for absentee landlords. So uh, there's work to be done because we need to create that, that affordable or attainable workforce housing in our community if we're going to continue to grow our lo- largest economic driver. So where in your, in terms of landlord tenancy, where do you see the imbalance? Where, where does it show up mostly for you? So, yeah, for example, right now, if we've, uh, there's a rental property that I'm aware of where the tenant, great tenant, maintains the property beautifully, does great work, but struggles financially. So sometimes the rent's late 20 days or, you know, wants to negotiate a lower rent. There's really no recourse for the landlord on that property to say, yeah, I'm done with this with this, the, uh, you know, I can't afford to have the, the rent 
rolling in whenever. So they have to give them 10 days and then they pay the 10 days and they start all over again. So there's really no, uh, there's no recourse for the landlord in that particular case. And we need, we need to look at how we can bring that balance back in play. On the Airbnb side of it is, can you make those change, you know, can you make bylaw changes locally to actually try and manage it within a context that works for the community? And are, are you, and do you have homeowners lobbying you to make, you know, like residents lobbying you to make changes because they're at the effect of the Airbnb and, and maybe the, you know, as you say, a 20 unit place that can turn into, because it's a tourist destination, uh, you know, you can see those, those things come off the rails on weekends where everybody's out to celebrate and have fun. It's a, it's pretty disruptive to the to the local residents uh, in in those cases. So do you so do you actually look sit down and say okay we got to look at how we can make some changes? Absolutely. One of the things I would never want to stop anybody from making money or running a business, whatever that looks like for them. But it's got to be in again in balance with with the community and what what works there, and if, is it the right thing to have in a particular community? One of the things that we're restricted to in in rural, so in the regional district, because I'm considered rural, we're not a municipality, don't have a mayor and council, um, so we're considered rural. We, regional districts don't have business licenses. So that's a bit of a barrier in order to kind of bring in some reasonable re- uh, regulations. And it's unfortunate because I'm not a, I'm not about the red tape, as you well know. But what happens is there's a typical case of where there's few that are ruined, ruined, ruining it for many. And I know in some communities, we've got short-term rental property owners who are saying, oh, my house, I make the rules and I'm going to do whatever I want to do because I can. So, you know, it sucks to be you, neighbor. And that's certainly not the approach that, that we want to take. So unfortunately on this one, I'm going to be advocating to look at getting business licenses in the regional district so that we can determine what types of home-based businesses, because essentially a short-term rental could be considered a home-based business, what's there, what do we have there, and is there? do we need to look at putting some restrictions into how many people they can have or how many in a, in a particular neighborhood or mile, you know, kind of uh, geographic area? We need to do some research and find out what's going to work for everybody. Let's make it work so that the the full-time residents, um, the summer residents are not impacted negatively by one property owner's wish to to generate some revenue um, for themselves. How's uh, BC's, you know, recent speculation tax going to affect these secondary home you know, out of province. So you've got, you know, Alberta is very, very, uh, you know, yeah. Alberta owners, that, that area is very popular for Alberta owners. So w- what do you think, or what are you starting to get wind of in the speculation tax that BC has implemented? And how do you think that's going to impact your community? Well, when it first came in, um, when they, when the provincial government first uh, started talking about it in the budget last year, we, as I was at the chamber and there was a lot of hue and cry about it. Lots of lots of concern, lots of fear around what that meant in in our community, in particularly. I know there was some 
you know, real estate deals that didn't go down because there was a lack of trust for that, that it wouldn't come here. It's not in, in the uh, regional district of East Kootenai or West Kootenai for that matter. It's not here. And, and, you know, the comments that I was getting back from Albertans was that doesn't mean it won't be. And, um, you know, we've been assured by the, by the ministry and by the minister that it's not, it's not, they have no intention of bringing the speculation tax here. I think it's a really poorly, it's not the tax, it's not a tax that's going to solve the problem that they meant for it to solve. So it's not the right way, in my opinion. Uh, and I think in the opinion of lots of others, my husband included, but it's, it's not going to solve the problem that they want to solve. It's, that's, that's the issue that we have with that. And, and it's punitive. So, um, you know, we've, we've been able to avoid, uh, we don't, we're not having to deal with the speculation tax. And I think for the most part, we still have some real estate purchases going on. It's not been a huge deterrent, but it certainly stops some people from, from moving ahead and, and purchasing. So when you look at what drives a community, what, how it's, how they thrive, we talk about, first off, there's got to be jobs. Uh, secondly, there, you know, in this, you brought it up, there has to be affordable housing. And so, you know, we need an economic condition that supports people moving into the area, uh, going to work, getting paid, uh, having a place to live or, or, you know, access to that. So do you see in the future where you look at your region and as a politician, and I'm looking at this both from a, I'm trying to get a, a handle on your perspective as a politician. I mean, as real estate investors, for example, we look at what's what's the GDP growth of a, of a province and then regionally, what is why would I invest in a specific area? Is there jobs there to support it? Can I actually, will real estate appreciate, will rents continue to rise in a based on economic growth and inflation? All the normal things. So do you see the, that the handicap, because I look at the region, it's beautiful, it's accessible, you're limited. You you are challenged with industry, but because you've got forestry is one of your is really your primary and mining. Do you see the affordable housing as a real challenge in terms of attracting people into the area? Because you can't get workers, and you certainly as a tourism area, they're not the necessarily the best paying jobs. So how do you how do you kind of take that all in and say where's the where's the future? Where's the vision for? that region do you do you have that picture or is that a is that a really tough question to even dig into that it's a huge question because there's a lot of moving parts to the solution mm. and and that's that's where you need and i think that's where small communities like ours really really struggle wrapping their heads around it so when i was at the at the chamber for Starting in 2012, we were advocating. We didn't have an economic development officer, so we started to advocate in a in a in a meaningful way to get somebody so that we can wrap our heads exactly around that issue. How do we attract uh, residents? How do we attract jobs? How do we move uh, job good paying jobs into the community? What type of industry or business sectors do we need to attract to create those good paying jobs? Because when when those good paying jobs are there, that also creates a level of, uh, of workforce as well, whether it's, it's kids or spouses or whatever to do some, some of that other work. Um, you know, what are we doing to attract, uh, 
new potentially new immigrants into our community as well because there's there's some good good paying jobs right now there's a lot of good paying jobs in our community and we're not attracting those those folks for them um we're seeing more uh, nomadic entrepreneurs so it's a convoluted issue that needs it needs a plan that continues to be worked, but there's got to be advocates. We've got to all be on the same page as far as politicians go to supporting those sectors where there's growth, making sure that we've got the support systems in place as far as broadband so that we can attract nomadic entrepreneurs, new industry, new technologies. I see that there's you know, there's been certainly a growth, um, for example, in Canal Flats, a mill closed in 2016, a mill that had been there for a hundred years wow. and it closed. And, you know, it put the community, that community of 760 people into, uh, into shock, but it also rallied the rest of the rest of the Valley into saying, okay, what do we need to do here? What do we need to do to help you? What can we do? you know, and tapping into the resources available from the province. And now they have uh, the Columbia Lake Technology Center that are bringing, that are building data pods. They're converting CCANs into data storage and they're creating this data storage farm that will generate energy to power the town at some point. Wow. It's really cool what's going on so from adversity becomes opportunity and i heard a great saying the other day you know um they'll say that crisis uh, builds character but um i heard a new one on that a crisis reveals character mm. and that's what it's done in canal flats you know people have stepped up and so now the mill site has this pod technology being developed it's in the bc business magazine um this month and um, they're also doing fabricating shop welding shops for retrofitting other mills across north america so that's really interesting so they they do this well all this welding work they get it ready and then they're shipping it shipping this this basically shipping steel to other parts of of north america so they've they've emerged out of what was by all accounts was a, a tragedy for a small town it's what could have could have made that small town of canal flats which is at the headwaters of the columbia river got to put in the tourism plug um <laughs> the assessment actually the 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 tax assessment was up 30%. Now, to have that kind of, uh, I guess, I'll call it a comeback or to start to come back, that takes the rallying of the troops, the community, and that takes strong leadership. And, you know, when I, as I'm listening to you, and, and I think what's so, you know, for me, what's interesting about this kind of a conversation in terms of how we look at what politicians do and what it takes, it gives us some real insight into how complex some of these issues are and it's a big monster to eat it's you know and and it even pales you know the old conversation how do you eat an elephant one you know one bite at a time but that doesn't even seem big enough like that is really this is truly a, an elephant and in in to take on and and i really even in this conversation start to look at the magnitude of what it takes in, in any size of a community and, and the challenges that you face. And the reason I want to point that out is because I want to take this just down a little slightly different path. And I want to talk about leadership in a community. And 
literally, you know, having pride in community, the challenges that you face, you know, whether it be affordable housing or jobs and industry and how do you attract people? How do you, how do you take, is, is it a goal of your area to, you know, would you say I, we want to double the population, for example, if you wanted to say, I want, we want to double this population, would that be a goal that, that you're, you know, riding would have? Is that something that you guys take on or do you just deal with what you deal with and try and keep it running efficiently and have some kind of growth? Do you have a growth plan? Yeah. And the, the short answer is no, we're, we're not going to be looking at, you know, you're not, we're not setting a goal where we want to double the population, but we want to make sure that people are attracted to living here, that people want to live here. And we could, that's our, I see that's our role is to create that environment where people want to come and live here and uh, create their businesses or, or get jobs that are available that's our role as politicians is to create create the environment where those things can take place. It's not our responsibility to do it, but it is to, to make sure that we have the environment to do that. So, for example, our transit service, as many people in British Columbia and Alberta and Saskatchewan are dealing with in rural communities with the, with the demise of Greyhound services, our transit is virtually non-existent. Within our community, we have BC Transit service, which is not adequate at all. So if we want to attract people where there is affordable housing, such as north of, of uh, the Columbia Valley in Spillamachine and Edgewater, or south where Canal Flats, but that's increasing in value uh, as they develop their economic development strategy and, and implement it. We don't have a way to get people to and from their jobs or to and from the uh, the commercial center, which is in Vermeer. So we, we, as politicians, it's, as I see it, it's our responsibility to find solutions to those foundational infrastructure problems and challenges. You know, that's the, you know, good, good water, uh, good transportation, good uh, pockets. So that our, our, as far as community commercial, making sure that it's a, it's an attractive community that people would want to come and live in. I don't know if that answers your, your question, but that's, I think that's the role that we have to play in order to help grow a community, creating that foundation and that infrastructure so that people do want to come in here and live. Yeah. And, and I mean, you have to, at some level, be able to, to attract business and uh, attract services and resources for people to want to live there. I mean, you know, one of the, you know, one of the challenges that all small communities face, I think, is what services are there that, you know, that beyond a, a great lifestyle and beautiful country and, and all that comes with that, because that is truly a lifestyle choice. You still need adequate services. You still, you know, it doesn't have to be a Walmart, but you, you, you know, you have to still attract uh, retail stores and businesses that support, you know, those supporting services. So I see it as a big challenge. You know, we've we talked a lot about this area, and I and I'm I'm very uh, I I hope the listeners are are hearing what's underlying this, which is the actually to even grasp the magnitude of what communities are up against and what politicians have to deal with and what they take on. And I, I mentioned leadership. Tell me a little bit about, do you have a, a specific philosophy around leadership other than empowering others, but what, it, what, how maybe has your leadership evolved or your view of leadership and how you are as a leader? How has that maybe evolved over the time that you would share with people to say, you know, this is what I've learned as a leader. Is there, is there some 
kind of sound bites you can give us around that, Susan? Yeah. Uh, you know, when I first got into management, I was mid twenties and I had managing a team of 25 and most of them were men old, most and all of them older than me. And it was, um, you know, I, I remember thinking, I have no idea what I'm, I have no idea, but they have no idea. I have no idea. So the way that I coped at that time, and it was coping was I went by the rules, strictly by the rules. Just, uh, so I really didn't have any leadership skills. I had this, these set of rules that I had to, that I worked with and played within. And, um, I remember, uh, my boss at the time said to me, you know, the rules are just the, they're the, they're the lines on the side of the road that you just need to stay generally within. Sometimes you have to go on the shoulder to move something forward. And it, and it was interesting for me because it was, you know, he's just helping me not to be quite so strict and to, to become more situational in my management skills and in my leadership skills. And then, so I'd had that conversation. And then we used to give the salesmen, sales uh, people their checks and have a chat about their performance for that particular month. And this one guy came in, it was on his day off and he brought his little boy in who would have been about five or so. And he tugged on my suit jacket and he said, are you the one they call the dragon lady? Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it was like, and, and the look on the dad's face was like, he just wanted to crawl under a rock. And I said to him, I said, you know, I think I might be. And that was a turning point for me is how do I do this better? How do I do this with more compassion and more heart? Because clearly that's not coming through. And that's, you know, not necessarily who I was, but I was overcompensating actually for my, for my lack of confidence, I'm sure, by just sticking within the, within the lines of the rules. So I, I became a better listener. And that, that little boy gave me a huge gift. I, I became a better listener. I, look, I now look for ways that we can work together um, without compromising my values or my integrity. But I certainly look and listen for, the inf for better information to make the right decisions so that they still fit in within the rules um, because that's just kind of who I am. But at the same time, I find a way to have things work. The other thing that I really, really pride myself on from a leadership perspective is I am totally okay when I have people that, that I'm working with who make mistakes, you know, people that I'm responsible for, if they make mistakes, I have no issue with mistakes. I would rather someone take a risk, make a mistake and learn from it than, than do nothing. Nothing drives me crazier than people sitting in kind of paralysis, move forward, make a decision. If it's the wrong decision, that's fine. Put the correction in and move forward again. Um, learn from it and try again, because that's the only way we can move forward. And that's what I try to instill in whoever I work with, whether I'm on a team or I have people reporting directly to me, is that it's okay to make mistakes. Don't make the same one like a dozen times, but move, learn from it, move forward. Because if we don't, we atrophy. You know, you, uh, you made such a great point that, you know, I want to shine a light on it. I, I see it often. And falling into the trap in leadership of actually, and you said it, 
you do it without compromising your values and your integrity. But it, if you're a, if you're wanting to be liked, if you're a people pleaser, if you are not really solid in who you are and, or confident in who you are, or you get off track, I'm sure you've seen it and you, you've probably like the rest of us have been guilty of it, where you've actually at times compromised your values and integrity and it's come back to bite you in the ass. I think it's such an important lesson. And, you know, I have to say that, you know, I, I, I admittedly get bit in the ass far too often because it's not that I'm a people pleaser, but one of my gifts and my curses is that I can see all sides and it causes, I have to now be aware of it in a really big way because I've got businesses. I've, you know, I got teams in Alberta, I got teams in British Columbia, I got teams across the country, but it's a real challenge for me. And what always I get grounded back into is what are my values? What is my integrity? And how do I stay grounded in that and having the awareness of it? So I don't, I don't want to step over that point because it's so incredibly important. And then the next thing that you said, which is so important as well is making a decision. You know, Jean-Guy Francoeur, who's our chief growth officer at the Rain office for the Real Estate Intelligence Network, really said it best. He's, you know, he's very successful. He's a young man at 35 years old who's a decision maker. But he doesn't, you know, he's the guy that jumps out of the airplane and builds the parachute on the way down. We've joked about that because he goes, that's where I'm going. I'm jumping and I'll get it figured out and I'm not going to go splat at the back end. One decision leads to the next decision. So it's not really a mistake. And an indecision leaves you nowhere. And then a decision is forced on you and you have actually zero control over it where whatever the decision is, it just leads to another decision, which is a fundamental philosophy of Stephanie, for example, where her her whole business profile around one of her, her coaching businesses and her skating businesses decide. I mean, she actually has that on the back of jerseys, you know, just decide because it leads to the next decision. So when you're guiding people as a leader, as a mentor, are you having that type of conversation? Do you see your mentorship as actually getting people grounded in that fundamental philosophy and so that they understand it? Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting because I, we just had to go through that with me deciding to run for election in our own household is that decision. You know, we talked about it and we talked about what, what the potential risks were going to be for us. So, you know, I was leaving a full-time good paying job at the chamber where I had, you know, lots of flexibility. I was basically running a small business for all intents and purposes. And I was going to leave that behind. and take on this municipal government role, which doesn't pay great. It's less than 30, 30 a year. But what I had said today is I'll, I will fill up the, the rest with some consulting work and doing some, doing some work. And, and uh, we're just going to have to trust that, that that's what's going to happen. And now I'm kind of in a position only four months in going, hmm, I'm going to have to say no to one of these opportunities because I, and that's exactly what it is. Cause, and you know, he, he was, well, how is that going to look? I said, well, I don't know exactly how it's going to look, but I know that it's going to look like, I just know, I just, I have that fortunate to have that belief in myself that I know that if I step into this, something is going to show up. And so it, again, it comes to that level of trust and intuition and belief that you're on the right path. And that's what I, will do for, you know, whether I've got a, you know, at the chamber, we hired a, um, 
a young woman last year, you know, she doesn't have a ton of worldly experience, but she's smart and she's curious and she has the ability and she, she's the last person to ask for help. So how I've discovered in working with her is I'll say, I wonder if I was in your position at your age, I might be feeling like this. Are you feeling like that? And she'll go, yeah, that's exactly how I'm feeling. She doesn't feel confident to share that with me. So I really have to kind of position um, and, and watch how I um, communicate with different people on making sure that they feel safe in sharing where their, where their fears are so we can move those fears out of the way and create the space for them to make a decision, create a safe place for them to make a decision. Because that's what's going to teach her that when she's my age, she has that trust in moving forward. So in empowering um, the decision-making process and letting them know that there, there's no wrong decisions. It's just going to lead you to what's next. And that's like building the parachute, right? It's this decision will lead you to the next decision, whatever that may look like. You've had lots of forks in the road in your life. Mm-hmm. And is there, is there any that, you know, is there, a, is there a particular fork in the road that really stands out for you that, you know, you, you made a clear decision choice to follow a particular fork? Is there something that shows up for you that was really, that you can reflect on now and go, yeah, that really was a game changer, life changer? Yeah, I've, you're right. I've I have had lots, and and a number a number come to come to mind for sure. Probably one of the a, a big one is that when I was living on Salisbury Island when I was 19, some stuff happened that my parents weren't real happy about. My dad wanted me to move back home and basically wanted to kind of re kickstart my life, I guess, of my adult life. So I agreed that I would move back home onto May Island. And, and we'd start over I might go to college or, or do whatever. And then I thought about it for a couple of weeks and I went back to mom and dad's and I said to my dad, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to, I'm going to fix this on my own. I'm going to, I'm going to get out of this what particular situation and I'm going to, I'm going to do it and I'm going to do it within the next six weeks. I don't know how it's going to look, but I'm going to do it. And he was really mad at me. Like he was really upset and I think he was scared for me. Mm-hmm. And I, I remember we went for this long walk and I said, uh, you know, and he was upset and I was upset and we just, I just said, you know, dad, I, I got to do this on my own. I just know I have to do this. I appreciate the fact that you want me to come home and do whatever's next, but I, I need to move forward on my own and I will get out of this situation and guarantee, I promise you that. And if I don't, then I'll, then we'll do it your way. But I, I will do this. And you know what? I, I think I told him I would do it within two months. And I did it in six, six weeks. And I moved from Salt Spring to Vancouver and had a full-time job. And, and my life was moving forward. So that was, that was probably the biggest one. And there's been many of those times since. Do you have a memory of, if I said, what was the biggest failure that you felt you had that turned out to be a blessing in disguise? Anything show up for you in that question? Yeah. <laughs> yep. I, uh, in, a, in a moment of emotion and being very discouraged, I quit my job at the Brick in Victoria. I would have been 27, I guess. And I was done. And I had this friend of mine 
had been after me to come and work for him in Edmonton. And I said, no, you know, I'm doing good. I mean, I was doing really well. Um, and so I, but I just got really upset at this particular time and it had been going on for a while, some challenges with the boss and it wasn't resolving itself. And I was feeling un- underappreciated by my employer. And so I, I just said, you know what, I'm done. And I quit. And I went to work for, for this guy on a contract basis. Well, I ended up in Regina and I ended up in, finally ended up in Edmonton. I've been living in Victoria, for goodness sakes. I ended up living in Edmonton. Not that there's anything wrong with Edmonton. <laughs> there's nothing wrong with out, Edmonton. Nothing wrong with Edmonton. But as it turned out, in the moment, it felt horrible. Like it was, I, so I mean, living in Edmonton, the project I'm working on wasn't successful I find myself with a roommate who I hardly knew, who happened to be Stephanie, and without a job, and, and I'm all alone. The only person I know is, is, is Stephanie, who was pushing all my buttons, I got to tell you. And I was down to my last $1,000. And I thought, what was I thinking? Oh, and I also learned that if I had stayed at the brick they were planning to offer me my own store, a brand new store in, in Nanaimo. So I felt like I'd thrown the baby out with the bathwater and you know what, my, I, I wasn't a good decision maker and all the bricks were falling out of the wall and I couldn't keep them in there. I, I just didn't have enough arms and legs to keep the bricks in the wall and, and my world was tumbling down around me. But in hindsight, it was the best thing that could have happened to me the best thing I could, that could have happened. I, I ended up doing some personal growth work and gaining some confidence in myself. And I learned what I was able to do. I was able to move myself forward faster with, through that process and recover faster than, than what I'd started before, if that makes any sense. But it was, it was in hindsight, the best thing that could have happened. Well, you know, the fact that you moved to Edmonton is really cool because if you hadn't, you wouldn't have met me and you wouldn't have exactly. met me. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Well, actually, you wouldn't have met Stephanie who then wouldn't have met me. So that's awesome. Yeah. Now, do you have a definition for success, Susan? I don't. That's a really interesting question. That's something that I should, you know, I guess, and because success looks so different for for everybody. I mean, for me, um, I look at my life and I'm, I'm happy. There's nothing I need. There, there's, there's n- nothing missing in my life. And I, and I guess that's what, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't look at, I don't wake up in the morning thinking I want to succeed. I wake up in the morning thinking, you know, what am I going to do today? That's going to make me happy. What am I going to, that's, you know, I guess that's, there's a sense of peace. There's this sense of happiness and, and I feel fulfilled. So I guess feeling fulfilled would be what success looks like for me. Yeah. I find the question, I asked the question and I hear it asked and, and what it does for is opens up a, you know, point of conversation is how do you really define success? And, you know, some, you know, money, well, that's a scorecard and, you know, all that does is, you know, say, okay, well, financially I feel successful, but you can be so unfulfilled. And, you know, you know, for you, what I hear in success is fulfillment, contribution, significance, you know, we all need significance. And, you know, you, by being a contribution, you get to, to, to feel and, and have a sense 
of being part of community or making a difference in other people's lives. It's, uh, you know, there's a, there was something, an article that I read once that, you know, pointed out the fact that if you're not focused on yourself, you can never be depressed. Now, I don't get to get into the subject of depression, but ultimately when you're feeling down, sad, or I don't want to say sad, but if you're feeling really down and depressed, the biggest cure for that, you know, as you think about it, is to go out and do something for somebody else. And to take, you know, not not be navel-gazing, not be feeling sorry for yourself. Get out, get, get that energy flowing outside. And, and so the world of success is, it is a big question. And I ask it because it just opens up different, I guess, paths of, of conversation about how people look at the world of success. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting because, you know, I when you say success, I think, oh, well, you know, I successfully completed building my greenhouse or, you know, my garden was a success because it produced vegetables for us. But I never look at my own life in the, from the perspective of success because it's, it's successes comes in moments. Mm -hmm. Right. And I guess I, it's being fulfilled. That's that I guess for me would be making a difference. That's successful. Yeah, that's a big one. Yeah. So as we wind down today, uh, Susan, and thank you for being on the podcast. Thanks. I, I learned lots of things about you. I've known you for so many years, and I mean, we've we've really spent a lot of time together with over the years and busy lives, and you know, you moving around the country. I don't hold that against you, but I did miss you most. <laughs> But you know what that was? That whole moving around the country is recognizing opportunities and taking advantage of them. And following your heart. Absolutely. Uh, well done. I like to uh, finish up with some rapid fire questions. Okay. What books are you reading right now or what book do you like to gift the most? What do you what's what's a really memorable book for you? Past or current? Oh, you know, actually I I haven't I've just started a, a book called Book Thief, but I haven't had a lot of time to read these days because I'm I'm reading a lot of reports like Columbia Lake Stewardship and the health of the Lake Lake Windermere. There is a lot of reports that I have to read to catch up on my new job. But uh, one of the books that I like to give people is The Way of the Peaceful Warrior. Mm. I mean, it's an Dan oldie, Millman. but it's a goldie. You know, it's a awesome book. Dan Millman, that's you know something that's like that book to find it. If we ever find it, Stephanie and I gift that to a lot of different people over the years. Yeah. And uh, yeah. and there's another one that's, um, oh, oh, geez, now I just, it's gone out of my head. It's the, uh, uh, it's a, it's about someone doing a walkabout in. Oh, in Australia. What's, uh, I can't remember her name, yeah. but, but <laughs> we both can't. Well, it'll come back to us. I'll actually have, I'll have, uh. I have one of the team put it in our in our in our notes because I know the book that you're talking about. Maybe it'll come to us by the time we're done here. And that was a life changer for me. Mm-hmm. That that was a that was a great book. But but the way that Dan Millman's Way of the Peaceful Warrior, um, you know, it's got such a great great message, doesn't it? Yeah. What job do you hate to do but you continue to do because you're good at it? You know what i I hate to clean my house. Ah. But I really like a clean house. <laughs> so, and if I really hate it, I, I hire someone. Yeah. <laughs> to do it. Because my time is be- better spent doing stuff that I love to do. So true. Do you have a favorite inspirational quote? Oh, you know what? Uh, whatever you think about, you can bring about. 
Do you have a favorite swear word? Oh, I'm I'm a big fan of the F word. You you, you drop F bombs, eh? Yeah, I know you do. I do. Yeah, I do. <laughs> it's sometimes you, it's the best word. I I think it. You know, time and time again. Now it's not. You know, on my podcast, it's not every guest's favorite word or you know favorite swear word, but it is definitely in the you know definitely in the top three. Well, it kind of grabs a whole bunch of stuff all yeah, at once. It right? just says it all, doesn't it? it? It can be good. It can be bad. It can be awesome. It, it's just, it just, yeah. And I feel bad that it's one of my favorites because my mom hated it. Mm. But sorry, mom. Be. Sorry, mom. If heaven exists, what do you want to hear God say when you get to the gates? Welcome. At a girl. Good job. On a scale of one to 10, how weird is Susan? Mm, I'm six. I'm not super weird. I no. don't think I'm super weird. No, you're not. Anything that you're just not very good at, like something that stands up, like I'm just, I think I should be able to do it, but I'm just really bad at it. What am I not really good at? See, I focus on the positives. So what am I not really good at? Oh, training my dog. Oh, you're hmm? training your dog. You're not very good at training your dog. I, I'm not, no, but I work hard at it. Yeah. Because Charlie, yeah, but I can see Charlie would just charm you. Yeah, he's, he's, yeah, I, I could be better at training my dog. I think Charlie, I, Charlie trains you better than you train Charlie. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, but he's, he's pretty good. Room, desk, or your car. What do you clean first? Room, desk, or my car. Room. Do you have a favorite tune? Um, Keeper of the Stars, actually. Tracy Bird. Yeah, mm. Keeper of the Stars. It's a great song. Which is weird because I'm not a huge country fan. Yeah. Do you have a favorite movie? I love um, Scarface. <laughs> that was a good movie. Um, awesome. <laughs> I, 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 I keep bringing it up, but have you seen Bohemian Rhapsody yet? No. Freddie Mercury story, Queen? I'm going to write that one down, though. Oh, you must. I'll text you. You must, okay. must, must. That... That went right to the top of my list, and and that's where I'm at with it. Not that this is about me, but sometimes I have to put in those sound bites. What are you grateful for, Susan? I am grateful for the fact that I I mean so much, but I'm I'm really grateful for the fact that I have grandchildren. Mm. I, as you know, didn't have kids of my own, and uh, when I made that decision that that wasn't going to happen. Cause I never, I didn't meet anyone in, that I wanted to have kids with until that ship had sailed. It never occurred to me that I wasn't going to get to have grandkids. And now I have five and, um, it's awesome. It is, you know, there's lots of people that said, if I knew how great being a grandparent was, I would have done that first. Well, <laughs> I did it first and, well done. and they're, they're awesome. And they, fill me up and they make me be a kid again and they keep me young. Yeah. I feel very, very blessed that their parents, my stepkids have trusted me with their children. I'm really grateful for that. Yeah. You're an amazing grandma. I know that. And it is interesting to be a grandparent, isn't it? And mm -hmm. it's, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm of that, you know, mindset as well is that you could never imagine or I could never have imagined the degree of love and care 
for these little bodies and these little people and how inspired I am to be around them and how much fun I have around them. And, and it's, it is really, really amazing to be able to be a contribution in uh, yeah. the family that way. Yeah, I love it, it is. It's a, it, I, I feel uh, very, very blessed that I have them in my life. Well, I, my dear, I'm grateful for having you as a friend and, and Doug and uh, having, <laughs> and Doug, <laughs> and, Doug and Charlie, and Charlie, like, I mean, it's, it's brilliant. And, uh, and, and to have been uh, part of sharing your journey. I'm very grateful for that and uh, yeah, appreciate I'm, your friendship. I feel very blessed to have some of the most amazing friends and, you know, not everyone has, has that luxury to surround themselves with great people, people that make them better, um, make them more of who they are. And, um, I feel really fortunate with friends like, like you and Stephanie and, and everywhere in my life, when I look at the people that I know that I call consider good friends, they make me a better me. And it sounds a little bit of a cliche, but they make me dig deeper into who into who I am. And I think that's what friendship does. Mm -hmm. I really do is that, you know, we, we challenge each other. We don't always agree. It's like, basically it's like, it's like brothers and sisters who, who aren't by blood, but we, I don't know with, whenever I spend time with you and Stephanie, I just, I feel more grounded in who I am. I feel more solid in who I am. And, and that truly is a blessing. And it's, and it makes me uh, be really picky frankly, around who I surround myself with mm. as far as friends go and who I spend time with. Because if, if they don't lift me up, then the, the alternate is not an option for me. Well, I think that's just such great wisdom and guidance. And it's a great way to uh, end our discussion today. Choose your friends wisely. Surround yourself with people that lift you up. And uh, don't be the smartest person in the room, for sure. Oh, exactly, right? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I'm never the smartest person in the room. Yeah. Because if I was, that'd be not a good thing. And it's uncomfortable. But, you know, those are just great, great words of wisdom right there. Yeah. Susan, thank you again. Make sure you say hello to Doug and uh, give Charlie a scratch behind the ear. And uh, sure will. we'll be chatting again soon. All right. Thanks, Patrick. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. If you found value in the podcast, please take the time to rate and review and share with others, share with your friends. As it is my goal to always improve and to provide the highest value for you, the listener, if you have any comments, suggestions, or questions you'd like answered, please email me at ceo at raincanada.com. That's ceo at reincanada.com. I look forward to hearing from you. And until next time, Patrick out.